Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Truth and Movies. Today, the death of Stalin. We read Marx, but are they good ones as Armando Iannucci's hysterical slice of horrible history hits the theatres? Also, I am not a witch. Exiled eight-year-old gets to speak and spell in surreal tale of superstitious Zambia. Film Club, BT Sport, as Warren takes on the politicians, big business and any notion of self-restraint in Bullworth. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And on board today's particular truth and movies, very interested to welcome Beth Webb. Hi, Beth. Hello. What do you get up to for a living? Uh, I am the multi-platform editor for Channel 4's short film strand, which is called Random Acts. Ooh. Yes. And is this something we should be looking out for? Uh, we have the new series, Series 4 of Random Acts, is coming to Channel 4 in November. Very right, excited. OK. Cool. Random Acts, that's A-C-T-S, it's not like a Halloween thing, is it? No, we will change it to Random Acts for Halloween, but uh, Are you going to? We, we do love a pun over in Channel 4. Oh, so. right, nice one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and also here, Adam Woodward, or is it? There's something different about you, Adam. What do you notice? It's almost like you've been on a journey, have you? Well, yeah, I was away. I conveniently missed the entire London Film Festival. Right, I was, nice. I had a good excuse. I was up a mountain yes. in Morocco. Yeah, you went up Atlas... I think it was like the highest peak in North Africa, I, w- wow, I was told. I? Just under 4,200 metres. That's a big mountain. It was the biggest I've been up. It was quite a punishing mm. uh, trek. Do you know, I'm not one of these people who who really gets a buzz from like conquering nature. <laughs> but it was quite an epic feeling. Right. Stood, being stood on top of a mountain and, and sort of looking around and seeing all yeah. the other... Towering above everything. There you go, nature. You've been conquered. Of yeah. course, what you missed was the London Film Festival, which was full of delights. No, Beth? Wasn't it? Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful year, I think, for especially for first features. A lot of the films that I saw and loved were, were first-time features, one of which we will be talking about later. All right. I'm Not a Witch uh, was, was wonderful. But, um, yeah, a really great year. I was out on the red carpet on Sunday for the closing film, which was... Three uh, Billboards. Three Billboards. What a great film. What a fun Which I think is film. so good that it's going to be your cover film for the next edition of Little White Light. Is that right? Yeah, I think we can reveal that. And I did some interviews with Martin McDonough, the director, wow. and Sam Rockwell, who's one of the one of the stars. What, a, what a cast. Yeah, it's a really cracking cast. And Frances McDormand oh uh, in the lead role is just uh, sublime. So, yeah, more on that, I think, for our next issue. Absolutely. All right. 
you miss the London Film Festival. You also miss the kind of WWE style set to, which ensued after I dissed uh, Noah Baumbach in our last edition. There's been a little bit of a a bound backlash, you might call it. Although some some messages of support, AJ in Yorkshire says, but basically says, now I've grown up, I understand that James is right, which I like that tick. <laughs> um, Mike says, I hate the squid and the whale for a few reasons, but I have a question or two. Do you think the likes of Baumbach are aware of the extent to which their characters are unlikable, self-obsessed and grating and hope to hold up a mirror to themselves and the people around them? Or... Is this just a happy accident? More importantly, does it matter? There's some big questions there, Beth. What do you think? Big questions. I think uh, my main issue with The Squid and the Whale was um, a film I loved growing up was Fly Away Home, starring Jeff Bridges as uh, Anna Paquin's father. And then in the film The Squid and the Whale, they're not father and daughter um, at all. It's funny because he references that in some comments. He said basically it was really awkward for them filming the scenes in Squid and the Whale because of the fact that previously they'd enjoyed a, a, a very different kind relationship. Yes, it's a jarring film to watch, having loved Fly Away Home as a child. Yeah, it's quite a jarring full film stop. anyway. Full, yeah. full <laughs> stop. And shout out to the person who doesn't wish to be named who says, really, how effing smug and self-complacent can you be to think that your happy childhood, James Richardson, means everyone's was the same. Did I didn't say I had a happy childhood. I was going to say, did you? And also, it's not self-complacent. Thing. Is that a thing? It's complacent. Anyway, I'll get more trouble for that. <laughs> But yeah, I took on board your comments and that. It's just, I guess it's all just opinions, isn't it? I think Baumbach's a filmmaker who does a good job of humanising characters who are flawed and uh, you not, really not particularly <laughs> likeable. No, no, I think that's, that's his approach. Whether yeah. you think he's successful in that or not, that's what he is trying to do. Yeah. No, clearly, clearly, yeah. Oh, on a lighter note, just before we get into reviewing movies and stuff, we were talking about great taglines. Mm. And Owen Hathaway says, I enjoyed your brief mention of taglines in this week's podcast. I've always loved a good tagline. Some of my favourites, I think, include Catch Me If You Can, A True Story of a Real Fake. That's a good one, isn't it? Possibly the all-time greatest. The Royal Tenenbaums, which Owen says this would be a great film club choice. That's a good shout, actually. Um, But anyway, tagline for The Royal Tenenbaums, do you know what that was, Beth? I don't, I'm afraid. Family isn't a word, it's a sentence. (gasps) Oh, and then Owen says there's some that's so good have just become part of the film lexicon now, like just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, mm-hmm. Jaws 2, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, Alien. I had a look, because there are loads of lists, and I, you know, there's some of the other ones are The 40-Year-Old Virgin, the Steve Carell film, The Longer You Wait, The Harder It Gets. Yeah. Yeah. I like Bride of Chucky, which was just simply Chucky Gets Lucky. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The Usual Suspects, Five Criminals, One Lineup, No Coincidence. I mean, it's all right. Kill Bill, Here Comes the Bride. That's a good one. Yeah. Apollo 13, Houston, We Have a Problem. Yeah. Bad Teacher, mm, She Doesn't Give an F. Did they ever actually say that, Houston, We Have a Problem? In the film? No, in, in real life. I don't know. Is it famous because of the tagline or was uh, it well, always I, a phrase? I wonder whether it was whether it was sort of, uh, they, they sort of cleaned it up for the for the film. Ah, uh. Or, or, or made it, you know, slightly snappier for the film and then right. that became... Possibly so. Of course, a, a line that was made famous later by the, you know, Bobby and Whitney's problems. Mm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right. Tagline for The Death of Stalin is a slightly disappointing a comedy of terrors or on some posters, The Fight for Leadership Begins. Let's get our thoughts on Amanda Yanucci's film after this.
Yeah, wonderful example, actually, of this film, which is a kind of chronicle in semi-comedic but really dark fashion of the final days of the reign of the Russian dictator Stalin and the often farcical events that followed in the battle for a succession. An all-star cast, Jason Isaacs, sporting a Yorkshire accent as an army general, Rupert Friend, uh, Steve Buscemi, Andrea Roseborough, Paddy Considine, Michael Palin, Jeffrey Tambor. And that clip is a great example, actually, of the, of the tone of the film. It's a mix of the banal and the barbaric and the truly terrific. Also, a kind of wonderfully anachronistic Paul Whitehouse, oh, yeah. who's he, a joy. He sort of steals the show. Every sort of line he delivers is just perfect. Um, yeah, it's a farce, really, I guess. Mm. But there's some darker notes to it as well. Truly. Uh, I was not expecting that, actually. Just based on Iannucci's previous work, uh, he does go for the kind of light satire, I would say, uh, skewering kind of contemporary political figures often. And this one, I wasn't as interested in maybe beforehand as a, as a uh, well as someone who's not particularly au fait with like post-war Soviet Union politics. But I just think the the character performances are so, so good in this. Mm. And I think the best thing about it is the fact that you don't have people doing a kind of mock Russian accent. Everyone's just playing themselves. And you have someone like Steve Buscemi who... You know, I think they have some facial prosthetics on him slightly and he's he's kind of made to be very balding and he's kind of looks the part of the character, but in every other way it's like, oh, it's Steve Buscemi, just giving this hilarious performance. Did you enjoy it, Beth? That clip certainly summed up one of the things I liked most about it. I wish I'd seen more of that, to be honest. I think with Inuchi's scripts, I want it to be lean, I don't want to see like an inch of fat on the dialogue and I found a little bit blundery and a little bit blustery and a little bit offensive. I know he sets out to offend at times and, you know, he's relatively tasteless and unlike Bombach where you say, you know, he sets out to humanise his characters, he certainly doesn't go out to do that. But there were certain issues I had with the humour, certainly at the expense of some of the women or lack of women in the film. One instance, uh, there's a, a woman or a young woman who's, it's heavily suggested she's imprisoned and raped by one of the one of the characters in the film and it's justified later on but not as soon as I'd like it to have been as you say very dark very quickly Mm. Um, and that I I had some some issues with otherwise it was fine it wasn't a perfect film which was disappointing okay although they're quite hard to come by aren't they they are that what this film does do tremendously well is marry the 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 kind of classical retelling of of a certain period of history and even though it's very contemporary in its telling it does feel authentic and also that difficult balance between humour, which is less of than you might expect from a Yanuchi film, and the utterly kind of chilling sense of jeopardy of any wrong word could get you a bullet in the head, or worse, as you say. I mean, the, I, I completely take your point. I think everybody in this film, though, is treated in a pretty merciless fashion, though, aren't they? Absolutely, and I think that was part of the issue, is that I would have hated this character as much if he had or hadn't imprisoned this girl. Right. I, I still would have, you know, wanted his comeuppance and the comeuppance of everybody else in the film. Yeah. It's just a, a you know, seven angry Soviets being the worst <laughs> possible version of themselves that they could be at any given time and for a lot of people that worked and it was wonderful, but for me I just I I wanted to see a little bit more. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's interesting the jeopardy thing because that's threatened initially quite a lot and then yeah, suddenly he delivers on it. There's a few shocking moments in the film, which I was not expecting at all. And you kind of know what you're going to get with an Inucci script, how that translates to a film. I think this is 
maybe his most mature or, or complete film in, in a lot of ways. Mm. Something like um, In The Loop, which I absolutely love, and anyone who's seen the thick of it, his TV show, you know, that is like jokes coming at you 100 miles an hour. And there's very little room for kind of much else, I suppose. And and this, it's interesting to see him, I guess, adopt a more dramatic approach to how to kind of develop a script or, or to take a script from the page and, and bring it to life. And it's not just a, a sort of character study. And There is, I think, also a sense of, of tragedy, although he's he doesn't in any way try and kind of put it centre stage. But I think underlying the events here, there is a sense of, of tragedy um, and a much bigger issues going on than, say, with the kind of screwball stylings of, 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 say, V. I mean, all of his work, I think, tends to be about the fact that politics is just farce and they dress it up with some kind of like statesman-like garb to try and get away with it all. And so it's, I guess this is the logical extension of all that. This is, you know, the ultimate playground for someone like him with his sensibilities. I really liked it. I can't wait for his Brexit film, which surely must be on the way. I would love to see him tackling a more contemporary subject than this as does much, he not do that often do you think well he that's what he does yeah you know and and to see him going into more historical territory it's interesting and i, I can see maybe why it's not the the best time for him to be coming out with a with a very contemporary political satire but that is what i would love to see him do more of so mm. i think this is great and it's a nice companion piece to a lot of his other work it kind of takes apart the political machine and showing you the way people manipulate each other this this kind of power struggle and climbing the ladder and all of it happens in like corridors and in you know closed rooms and I, I love that kind of insight that he gives you into what he imagines to be the historical political context of this film mm. you you're not a student of russian politics no. Beth, would you recommend this to somebody who didn't have an interest in russian politics I would say stick with it. And I think it's definitely saved by a wonderful opening sequence of Buddy Considine, who's just wonderful. I, I really love the, the sort of sub-characters. Rupert Friend is fantastic in this film. A real revelation, I think, really shows how his comedic muscles can flex mm. if he's pushed. It wasn't for me. Was um, it not? Okay. No. All right. But there are, I mean, the, there were moments that I hope you enjoyed. Like, for example, the bit where they're all voting around a table and this extraordinary kind of hokey-cokey with the, the hands going up and down. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the part in the clip there, that sort of razor-sharp delivery from some esteemed and, and much-loved actors, you know, together. Wonderful. I would have just liked to have seen more of that. Mm. I do love the, the character of Stalin himself, who he's imagined as a sort of, he's like got a Cockney accent, very sweary, uh, very dismissive to basically everyone around him. He's very funny. Mm. We also heard from Simon Russell Beale in the, in that clip before, who is, I mean, he's outstanding, no, as, as the NKVD oh, yeah. chief um, barrier. He's never really had much of a movie or TV career, has he, or have I just missed it? No, I was trying to think, actually, watching it, what was the last thing I'd seen him in, and I couldn't think what it was, so I'm not sure that he has done much, right. actually. I just wonder whether he's poised to kind of crossover from theatre in much the same way that um, Mark Rylance did or has done as suddenly kind of in about a billion things. I, I think that's a good shout because he does do quite a lot of dramatic stuff in this, a lot of heavy lifting actually mm. and uh, I think yeah he's he's right for someone like could be a Spielberg or someone to come along and give him a, a meaty part. There you go Simon. By the way Michael Palin's in this. Was it a conscious homage to Python to have a sequence with church leaders so Michael Palin could shout, Bishop? I think possibly. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. Right. Yeah. 
Excellent. All right. Well, so, okay, Beth, do you want to go first with your numbers? Yeah, sure. Anticipation was a five. Was it? I was very, very excited. I was reminded this morning of a quote from the film Zombieland, weirdly, where Emma Stone is about to meet Bill Murray and she says, oh, he's got this direct line to my funny bone. And that's exactly it with Ianichi, with me. I've had countless hours laughing at his shows, at his films. Um, so I went in with the, the highest of hopes. Three saved by the first and final acts, I think, for very different reasons and by those little those little pockets of deliverance sort of in throughout. And then I've stuck to my three for okay. for reflection. Um mm. I tried, you know, I went home and I read all the hype and I tried to immerse myself in it and give him the benefit of the doubt and whereas it wasn't a terrible film, it wasn't the film that I'd gone and hoping for. All right, Adam? I think probably four, four, three. Four, and four, three. I, yeah, and I would like to rewatch it, especially early on when they're when they're really kind of bickering over what to do in the in the immediate aftermath of Stalin's death, and maybe a lot of the jokes kind of get lost. There's a lot of subtle name calling and just kind of catty remarks that they throw at each other, which I'd love to just revisit that because I think it's, it's it is very funny. It's a tremendous ensemble cast, isn't it? But it doesn't have the kind of machine gun laugh delivery that you might expect from some of his previous work. It made me think of Dario Fo, actually, the tone of this film, that kind of marrying of kind of political satire and and, and really dark humour. And for me, that's quite high praise. I was really looking forward to it. It wasn't the film I thought it was going to be, but I really enjoyed it anyway. Mm. I'd give it, I don't know, like fives across, but certainly high fours. Yeah, I, I really recommend it. I think maybe it feels like it doesn't have that much weight to it. Mm. And maybe the subject is lower hanging fruit than he's gone for previously. Or at least, you know, it seems an obvious thing to skewer if you're going to go back to that kind of period in history. But Fair enough. Anyway, it kind of gets largely a thumbs up then. Yeah. Death sure. of Stalin with some qualifications. All right, next up on Truth and Movies, I Am Not a Witch. I Am Not a Witch, Rungano Nioni's debut feature, set in Zambia, static, at times, surreal, at lots of other times. Beth, how can you explain this film? Okay, we've got a little girl, Shula, who's eight years old. She's accused of being a witch by her fellow villagers. She doesn't confirm or deny if she's a witch or not. She just stays silent and she's shipped off to a witch camp where she befriends a crowd of elderly witches and the film picks up from there. Okay. Now you you spoke to Rangano Nioni, this uh, who's who is from Zambia but grew up in Wales. Is that right? Yeah, Zambian Welsh. This is her first feature. She's made a series of shorts before, but this is the first feature that she's put together, and it's been hyped across festivals. I struggled to get a seat at the, the screening, even though it's had multiple press screenings. It's come with a lot of weight and a lot of um, excitement, and I think with good reason. All right, it lives up to the hype for you. For me, it did. This is what I wanted to see with satire, is just something completely new. And it's cutting and it's dark, but it's also got a lot of um, humanity behind it, a lot of humour, a lot of warmth as well, carried all on the shoulders of this amazing eight-year-old girl. Maggie Malubwa. Maggie Malubwa, which uh, the director found via WhatsApp, I think it was. Really? The casting director managed to find the girl, WhatsApped her this picture, and uh, the rest sort of formulated around that. Okay. Um, I mean, it is a crazy story and a crazy film, and the direction, especially for a first-time director, is very interesting, the way she's approached it. It does feel very satirical, almost Terry Gilliam-esque, some elements of it, but I wasn't sure which 
how far the satire went and how, how much of it is actually genuinely that's what happens. Well, this is the issue. I asked her why she had decided on this sort of satirical approach and she said, she's quite self-deprecating, which is nice. Mm. She said that she doesn't think on reflection perhaps satire was the right route to take just because with Western films, there's obviously very obvious points of reference. She said she used Dr. Strangelove as a reference. And with Dr. Strangelove, you laugh easily because you know where the satire ends and reality begins. But she said, you know, people just don't know Africa as well. Mm. It's all through third-hand accounts, which... So it's difficult to kind of realise where that satire ends and where you should stop laughing, basically. Because right. um, the story, that, I mean, it's not a natural subject for comedy, what happens to this this girl or indeed any of the women in these witch camps which genuinely exist. Yeah, she went to one of the most organised witch camps in Ghana, which just to say witch camp sounds a little strange, but she... I guess we should say that they're not witches as in Western society we think yeah. of them. It's very much like witch doctor... Uh, although it doesn't really go into too much detail about what like they're practicing witches, but what mm. that actually entails and what that means. There are some things which she has uh, wheeled out to perform, and the, one of the, the men of the witch camp uh, kills a chicken as a, as a way of divining something early on. It's also, I mean, a, a nice touch, which I think she's added, an embellishment is these long ribbons which they're tied with to prevent them flying away, because as a guide explains early on in the film, that's when they kill, they fly away and they, they kill fly people. At night. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think they're told if the if the ribbon is cut they'll turn into a goat mm. or something. And... Mm. I felt the film was a little bit ambivalent about whether she is actually mm. in any way gifted because there's there's certain signs in there that she she is, although equally the film's pretty clear on the fact that anybody can end up at this witch camp just by the virtue of a, a neighbour saying that you cut their arm off in a dream. Yeah, no, I think that's probably my my biggest problem with the film is that you wanted to find out more about her and you wanted to find out a little bit more about her her character, but I feel like the the storytelling was quite restrained mm. um, and the focus was too much on the satire and too much on the the actual subject that was being taken apart. It's very deadpan, isn't it? The direction, the photography is amazing, mm. but it's as I mentioned with static before, it it is quite still. It does just present things and. I felt without almost comment from the director. Yeah, it's bitingly so at times, and it's a very cruel film as well. I think the the humour certainly helps. Um, in the interview, Rangani said she's quite an angry person, and she worried that came across a little bit too much, right. but um, which would probably explain the cruelty and the the sort of stillness of it. Mm, okay, there's some very interesting musical choices in this film as well. Not least the use of Vivaldi's Four Seasons over the intro, which I was. Very curious as to how that came about. Yeah, and then you've got a bit of Kanye in there a little later. Yeah. Um, the Western influence is uh, there as well. I felt like that sort of set up the film to be something that it wasn't. Mm. I'd like to have seen a different choice there. Okay. What then did you make of this film in kind of numerical terms, empirically speaking? Okay, falls across the board. Okay. Um, the concept alone would have brought me in regardless of if it was Zambian Welsh or if it was from you know another country. Um, I thought it was very captivating. I thought it was very creative uh, in terms of visual choices and incredibly funny, a lot funnier than I was anticipating. There's a wonderful character in it called Mr. Banda, who was a Zambian comedian, and he brought a lot to that and made me laugh a lot. And also a very cruel film as well, but I felt like the balance was tone perfect there. And then for, again, I think I'd recommend that to a lot of people to go out and see as something slightly off the, the beaten track. It's certainly unlike anything else I can remember mm. seeing. I'm glad Beth's taken the, the 
the job of, of explaining this one because I think I would struggle to maybe explain what this film is about to someone. And I think that's probably a good thing. You mm. know, there's there's a lot of ambiguity about it. I love the uh, enigmatic performance by young Maggie, and there's so much about it which I was intrigued by and which kind of kept me thinking and guessing. And there is a sort of resolution there, but she kind of just introduces enough interesting images and ideas and things to think about as you're watching and afterwards as well. I think it's it's a flawed first film. Mm. The yeah. flaw being? There's a few, but the, the satirical element of it, frankly, a lot of that went over my head. I think being transported to a world which I didn't really know much about beforehand, I did need a bit more, maybe a bit more information actually about, mm. you know, who these characters are and the environment and the, 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 yeah, the world in which they live. So maybe some of that didn't quite land for me, this, mm. the satirical stuff. But I think, you know, visually, as you say, it's very striking. She's clearly a director with uh, a really strong voice and uh, a, an eye for a, an interesting original story. So I think I'd go four and then three, three, but very high-end threes. Right. Four, three, three for me as well. I think a really interesting premise and visually very stark and, and stylish. But I was a bit bewildered by lots of it and some of the plot developments I'm still not clear on mm-hmm. at all, which you know may well be Rungano Nioni's intention. But I salute her for making a film that seems utterly different. To, I mean, you couldn't look at this girl. Well, she's clearly taken this from there and that from... You know, it's, it's, she's clearly got a voice there. Oh, and uh, director of photography, David Gallego. Pretty bang-up job. Yeah, top work. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, then. That's I Am Not a Witch. Next up, film club. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why do you think there are no more black leaders? Some people think it's because they all got killed. But I think it has more to do with the decimation of the manufacturing base in the urban centers. Senator, an optimistic, energized population throws up optimistic, energized leaders. And when you shift manufacturing to the Sun Belt in the third world, you destroy the blue-collar core of the black activist population. Some people would say the problem is purely cultural. The power of the media that's continually controlled by fewer and fewer people. Add to that monopoly of the media, a consumer culture that's based on self-gratification. You're not likely to have a population that wants leadership that calls for self-sacrifice. Yeah, that was Warren Beatty as Senator J. Billington Bullworth getting a political lesson from Halle Berry as Nina. And what did listeners make of this, Adam? Uh, well, Chris Boggs calls it one of the best political satires ever, if not the best. Wow. Chris Barry Eleanor says, one of my favourite films of all time. And Ian Short says, it's all right, it's No Reds, which is, of course, one, one of Warren Beatty's earlier mm. directorial efforts. Right. Beth? Danny Stewart says, it's good and funny and I like the Morricone score. Wow, I was not even aware that there was a Morricone score because much of the kind of oral soundscape is dominated by 90s hip-hop. It is. That is a killer soundtrack. Mm. Okay. Wow. That from Chris Boggs about it being one of the best political satires ever. For me, that clip was great and I wanted to hear a little bit more of that. I found it quite a frustrating film because there's some really interesting ideas and observations about money and power and TV. But there was a lot of other stuff that really didn't work as well. You mean kind of subplotty stuff? I mean, okay, so I thought it was a... I thought it was a really interesting film and I'm glad to have watched it because it said things that I've not seen said anywhere else, certainly in kind of mainstream movies. And it is also to be applauded how willing Warren Beatty is to make himself look ridiculous in this film. Oh, yeah. With this kind of wigification. It it kind of works on two levels because you've got his character is doing something which has never been seen or heard before. And then at the same time, you've got the film essentially delivering that same message. Hmm. And, you know, 1998, this is way before Obama, a time when I don't think people, certainly not in white Hollywood, would have been talking about this stuff or the media at large. So it's it's an interesting film and, and a potentially quite a risky film for Warren Beatty to have made at the time. OK, Bullworth, if you didn't catch it, is about a liberal politician who's pretty much in, well, he's in the midst of a nervous breakdown who first of all puts out a contract on his own life and then rediscovers his mojo and an extraordinary and career-threatening line in honesty, basically through the medium of hip-hop and Halle Berry and a weird kind of left turn through South Central. Can he call off the hit in time? Will he be a hit with the voters? These are the, the questions that this kind of broad political farce is dealing with. So I was saying that there are some really interesting ideas, but my issue with the film at the same time, because of course I have an issue with this film, is is how narcissistic it is. It's kind of white Hollywood superstar riding through Compton as the (laughs) knight in shining armour. And even though they are kind of ridiculous things that he he does, 
Only a man who was the subject of You're So Vain could have written, I think, a, a vanity project mm. quite as outlandish as this one. Well, this is it. I mean, that's the underlying plot, isn't it? Broken democratic uh, senator comes in and saves a, a black community and gets the literally gets the kids off the streets, I think, at one stage. It's, yeah, incredibly narcissistic, I think, but... Um, and dated. I think we were saying it's dated, you know, probably mm. a few days after release. It's sort of... Because it's kind of a Hollywood version of edgy. Yes. It is like Hollywood discovered hip-hop in like the late 90s. Or he's just read like a long read about civil rights issues and thought, oh, wow. What? Although, to be fair to Warren Beatty, he's always been quite socially... I mean, you mentioned Reds before, he's always been yeah, quite socially... Yeah, that is true. But this is specifically honing in on this subject uh, in the way that he does. I, someone um, was talking to me about this film saying they wondered whether the poster had an impact on the film's poor box office because it is a, a strange way to market a film. It's mm. like Warren Beatty in his hip-hop regalia kind of emerging from his own spitting image. Claiming out of his mouth. It's very strange. And is it, Was there an echo of Munch the scream in there do you think <laughs> potentially yeah um, it's quite horrific either way it's, mm. yeah it's quite a, an arresting and not particularly what's the tagline image uh, the tagline is brace yourself this politician is about to tell the truth which if you kind of say it in a Warren Beatty doing a hip hop voice yeah in your head maybe with the image of the poster works but, right but you know we talk about the snappiest it, no no we're talking about it being quite a dated film but yeah. actually in other ways its message what it's actually saying is not dated it's totally relevant to yeah. today and actually i think that's such an interesting thing about the film is that well it wasn't really received very well at the time people didn't really know what to make of it it performed quite poorly at the box office and somehow its message is is kind of yeah, grown slightly in, in terms of its scope and its and its weight and what he's actually saying in the film. It doesn't just relate to the people in South Central Los Angeles. It relates to people all over America and the Western world. And yeah, watching it today, I'd seen the film before a long time ago and I must say I didn't like it on, on first viewing. Mm. But this time I was, yeah, really struck actually by okay. the pertinence of the message. Above all, I think it's just quite a brave film to have made. And to try and pitch that comedy, uh, the satirical elements of it, in, in in the right way, not an easy thing for someone who's as prominent and high profile a person as he was, known for a certain brand, I guess, type of film, and especially as an actor, he obviously came out of left field, and maybe that's just why people forgotten about it. Perhaps so. Certainly, I think the messages still reign true today, perhaps more than ever. But I feel like the the motivations behind them are so different now. Like, because the reason that Warren Beatty's character goes on this kind of mission for the truth is because he's got nothing left to lose. It's because he knows that he's not going to win the election. He knows his career is not going to progress. He's going out swinging. Whereas I feel like you know the message still reigns true today. But it's these are politicians who have everything to lose, and they're still the messages are still the same. I think it's quite shocking almost the way that um, watching that now in the, the climate that we're in now. Mm. I mean, even at one stage, he's in a, in a club and he raps about the word that got Trump in trouble with a lot of feminists and, you know, a lot of men that want equal rights for women. And mm. he does a whole rap around this, you know, this word. And it's just, it, I found it quite shocking knowing what we know now and watching this back and seeing this kind of you know, oh, isn't he great? He's being heroic and coming out and speaking the truth and you've got politicians just doing it now because they can. It's um, it's very interesting to watch in retrospect. Like you're, you're right in what you said about his motivations come from this place of despair and I guess throwing caution to the wind. 
But actually it pays off because he gets re-elected in a landslide. And yeah, it's interesting. We now have a, a guy in the highest office in America who essentially goes out, says what he likes, doesn't do it, thankfully, through the medium of hip hop. But essentially he's <laughs> telling it like it is in his own way. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just, a, I think it's a fascinatingly, suddenly quite prescient satire. Mm. Um, he made this eight years after his previous film. Dick Tracy actually was the, the film he made before this, so a bit of a leap there. Yeah. And it's now been 18 years, the gap between this and Rules Don't Apply, or which actually I think came out last year. It came out at the end of last year, yeah. Right, which I never saw. Is it any good, Rules Don't it's, Apply? It's quite good, yeah. It's fine. <laughs> I think this really, Bullworth really kind of did for Beatty as a, as a director. Really? Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much money it actually cost. I think it was about $30 million mm. or something, which is not nothing in 1998 as a kind of mid-sized movie. But yeah, I, I don't think a studio would have been particularly keen to give him much free reign after this one but mm. uh, which is maybe sad and, and mm. there's a lot of good things about the film and not just in Beatty's performance but you have a young Halle Berry who I think steals the show I think the only thing there is maybe that he gets bogged down a little bit in the subplot of the um, the hit that he's essentially put on himself um, which he becomes tangled up in that I didn't find quite as interesting but mm. I'd have um, liked to have seen that as a film in itself as Halle Berry going around as a young activist with her mates Offing people. Offing people. (laughs) All right, then. Excellent. Well, that was Bullworth. And what are we going to have next week? Uh, Oscar Ventura Franco writes and says, how about if you review William Peter Blatty's incredibly underrated The Exorcist 3 for the week of Halloween? That's actually in two weeks' time. Yeah, what we might do is uh, throw it out to listeners, actually. Ah. If you've got a suggestion so we could re-watch for Halloween, maybe it's like your go-to Halloween movie. Mm. We'll pick our favourite from that. From We've already got one vote here then for Exorcist 3, so yep. we'll, we'll, we'll stick that That's, on. We've got one tally. Yeah. Yep. What would your recommendation be? I'm just going to put you on the spot there, Beth. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Scream 3. Scream 3? Yeah. Again, the third of the trilogy. Third of the trilogy. The first two have had their time. I think we need a detailed and evaluated argument for Scream, Scream 3. Scream 3. Yeah. That's a great shout. A great nomination. Which one's Scream 3? That... That's the most matter of them all. Where, oh. uh, they're in a film studio and um, picked up one by one and we've got the amazing Parker Posey in there and they've made a film of Scream and then the, the killer is in the film of Scream and it's just boxes and boxes oh, wow. and boxes. That does sound intriguing actually. What are you going to come up with, Adam? Well, I, a film that I haven't actually seen, uh-huh. but I want to see, uh-huh. and I've been waiting for a moment to see it. It's another horror sequel. It's Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Ooh. Was that after A Nightmare on Elm Street? Or was yeah, it- it's like the fourth or fifth. It's basically, he'd made, I think, the first couple, right. and then the franchise fell out of his hands and he kind of came back and made this film okay and it's it, it deals with like reality television a lot like basically right. Freddy Krueger has become a kind of celebrity it's strange sounding film but right. I, yeah one I really want to see so okay alright my favourite horror movie is Drag Me to Hell because it's just about as scary as I can manage <laughs> and really funny as well have you seen Drag Me to Hell that's the Sam Raimi one yeah I have not seen it, but I do like my horrors more funny this, than scary. I, I never go to the, the cinema to watch horrors, but this had a trailer that was so intriguing that I just couldn't not go, if that's the right combination of negatives. <laughs> Basically, this woman who's trying to get ahead at a bank is told by her boss that she needs to start making the tough decisions if she's going to get that promotion. And lo and behold, she's suddenly confronted with a, a little old gypsy lady who's about to get kicked out of her house because she keeps defaulting on her mortgage. And whilst her instinct is to give her another chance or help her in some way, she remembers that she needs to make a tough decision. 
and an unpleasant scene ensues, which leads to a gypsy curse being placed on her, which, after three days of torment, will see her being dragged to hell. And the rest is the movie, and it's her attempts to, by whatever means, escape the rapidly tightening metaphorical noose around her neck. It's a terrific film. If you haven't seen it, just go and watch it anyway, because it's great, but you probably have, haven't you? Mm. Right, okay, so we're voting on what we're doing in two weeks' time. But for Film Club next week, Adam? Uh, well, for next week, uh, well, we're going to be covering Thor, mm. uh, Ragnarok. Yep. Uh, next week, which is Taika Waititi, and one of his previous films. In fact, I think his last film, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. Right. Which came out, I think, a couple of years ago. Mm. And, and everyone uh, raved about it. Everyone seemed to love, but yep. not that many people seem to have seen. I so, haven't seen it. Yeah, so there you go. So have I you seen it, Beth? a nice one to revisit. I have. I am a dedicated Taika-path. Are you? So, uh, okay. big fan of Taika Waititi. Look, we got lost, I got injured, he's fine. It was basically a holiday. Not a real holiday, because you made me do stuff. Like what? Just stuff. He had a sore leg, so he made me do things for him. It was hard at first because my hands are so soft. But I got used to it. I didn't really want to do it, but it was the only way to survive. It wasn't always hard. Sometimes I got to do my own thing. He pretty much never joined in with me, though. I asked if he wanted to play with me, but... He would just make me play with myself. I feel sick. I feel sick, you. Well, hang on, he doesn't know what he means. You're a bloody pervert. What'd you call me? You heard him? Yeah, you heard him, you're a perv. Hey, he's not a pervert, you dickhead! Shut up, Ricky. Yeah, shut up, Ricky. Hey, only I get to tell him to shut up. <sighs> Brainwasher. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, so, so we got Thor, and we got Hunt for the World of People, and... There's also a very special release next week, isn't there, Adam? Yeah, Call Me By Your Name is finally coming out. Feels right. like a long time coming. Yeah. A lot has been said, mainly by you and David, about this <laughs> film. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Mm, excellent. Okay, if you have anything you want to tell us about, then remember there's the comments section on the Little White Lies website. Uh, there's our email, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, at Little White Lies on Twitter, or the Facebook page. And Adam's also put up, as I mentioned before, a full list, a kind of back catalogue of, of the old Film Club nominations on the Little White Lies website. Many thanks to Beth and Adam for being with us today. Thank you. Anything Thank else you, you want to throw out there, Beth? Uh, no, I don't no? think okay. so. All right. Adam? No, that's all from me. All done. Good. Off you go then, listeners. We'll catch up with you again next week. This has been a Seven Digital production. Shh.